Ten years ago, I was in Portland, in Oregon, in the United States at a conference. Got to the end of day one of this conference and I was walking back to my hotel. And in the distance, I could see strange flashing lights. Pink, blue, green, red. Looked like a rock concert was happening in front of me. But there was no music, no noise whatsoever. I continued to walk block by block got closer to the source of these lights. And I realised they were coming from the city square, sort of like Fed Square, but Portland style. And there were thousands of people milling around in this square. And they weren't just milling around in the square, they were actually jumping up and down together in this square. They were dancing, all in unison, all dancing to the same tune, which wasn't playing. It was a bizarre sight. I looked a little closer and this is kind of how it looked. They all had headphones on. This is one of the early silent discos. And all around the edge of the square were people like me shaking our heads and laughing at the people in the square. We didn't get it. We had no idea really what they were hearing. Yet the people in the square were fully engaged with the music that they heard. Today we're going to look at a passage in 2 Samuel in chapter 6 where someone is dancing to a song and someone can't hear the tune and they're shaking their head looking at them. I don't know about you but I've really enjoyed this um, series that we're working through on the life of David. David, someone that I've always been fascinated with. I remember even as a little redhead kid lying in bed reading... <laughs> the story of David and Goliath and picturing my little red-headed self <laughs> in the story. Isn't AI wonderful and what you can create now? I could see myself in, in that little shepherd boy standing before Goliath. I could see myself in the adventures of David. He was someone I was fascinated with. As I grew a little bit older, I was still fascinated by David, not so much for the adventures that he went on, but for the nuances in his story. David is a complicated character. Like all the heroes of the Bible, the writers of the stories weren't afraid to show us the warts and all picture of the, the heroes. David is someone who has highs and he has adventures. He has his victories, but he also has his failures. He has his temptations. He has his moments of heartbreak. And in all of those things, as I grew up, I began to see myself also. In David's stories of friendship with Jonathan, I saw my, myself with my own friendships and the ups and downs of those. As David was persecuted and on the run and, and faced all kinds of challenges, I saw my own challenges as well. As he faced his temptations... I, faced, I saw my own temptations. As I saw his spectacular failures, I saw my own. I saw David, who is described in 1 Samuel and in Acts as being a man after God's own heart. And this has always been a really meaningful kind of phrase for me, even since I was a teenager. David was described as a man after God's own heart. In the highs and in the lows, he... he continue to be someone who pursued after God. And in the passage we're going to look at today, 
we see him pursuing God in a, in a really beautiful way. The context of chapter 6 that we're going to look at today is interesting. We're, we're in second, the second book of Samuel now. The first book of Samuel, the second half of that, we've been looking at the early life of David, David and Goliath, him being anointed the king of Israel, uh, or the next king of Israel, him um, entering into a really complicated relationship with Saul, becoming best friends with Saul's son, marrying Saul's daughter, um, Saul becoming jealous of him and trying to kill him, David going on the run. The years and years of David wondering perhaps whether he really would become king. You can kind of imagine him, the, the ride that he's been on, the roller coaster ride. The end of the first book of Samuel we hear the news that um, Saul and Jonathan have died. Jonathan's died in battle. Saul's become uh, wounded in battle, and he ends up falling on his own sword. And the second book of Samuel opens with David hearing the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And his reaction to that isn't rejoicing, now I can be king, it's lament. We have this beautiful, humble poem, uh, a song of lament. David doesn't become king straight away of Israel. He becomes king of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. Um, and the, the house of Saul takes the other tribes. And for seven more years of waiting, the, the war breaks out between the house of David and the house of Saul. It's not until chapter 5, um, seven years later, that um, the house of David um, uh, is victorious over the house of Saul. And the other 12, other 11 tribes come to David and say, will you be king of all of the tribes, a united Israel? David accepts uh, the kingship at last. It's been a long time waiting. He was anointed king somewhere between the ages of 10 and 15, and now he's 30. It's been at least 15 years of him waiting for this moment, his crowning moment. David decides he needs a capital city, so he invades Jerusalem, takes Jerusalem, makes it his political capital, builds himself a palace there. The Philistines then attack, and he defeats them, conquers them, wipes them out. This victorious moment. You could forgive David at this moment in his life to allow himself to be carried into Jerusalem on the shoulders of his people and celebrated. This is his moment. He is now the king. He has the position. He has the power. He has the success and victories. And yet David decides on this day to enter into Jerusalem in a different way, to make God the focus of this procession that comes into Jerusalem. David decides this is the moment to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now, we haven't heard about the Ark of the Covenant since chapter 7 of the first book of Samuel. It hasn't been mentioned during the whole reign of Saul, 40 years of, of um, Saul's reign. It hasn't been mentioned at all. The last time we heard of the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a wooden box covered in gold, was when it um, was returned to the territory of the Israelites, having been captured by the Philistines. The Philistines had captured it in battle, and they had toured it around their territory, and everywhere it went, disaster followed it. Plagues broke out, tumours came upon the people. And so they got a bit sick of it after a while and decided to send it back to Israel, and they sent it back on the back of a cart um, a carry, um, drawn by two cows. 
They didn't even want to go with it. They just said, cows go. And the cows took it back to Israel. It also had these gold offerings, these gifts of appeasement. They were trying to bribe God, really, stop the plagues, stop the tumours. And so it went back to Israel. Unfortunately, some of the Israelites looked inside the Ark of the Covenant, something you shouldn't have done then, and 50,000 men died as a result of it. So the Israelites weren't too happy about it either at that point. And so for 40 years, it kind of languished in this back box of Israel in this little town. That was the last time we heard of the Ark of the Covenant. David decides all these years later, this is the moment to bring it back into the heart of worship of his people. He wanted to make Jerusalem not just a political capital, but a spiritual capital. And this is the moment that he does it. It's kind of strange in some ways. David, this is his, his crowning moment. He now has this position. He now has this power. And yet he decides very humbly, quite remarkably, to make this moment not about him but about God. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. Inside this box was the two tablets which had the Ten Commandments on it, which reminded the people of God's law and revelation. also had the rod of Aaron in it, which reminded the people of God's rule and power. And it also had this little golden jar of manna, which reminded the people of God's provision. The top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. Jesus was actually called the Mercy Seat as well um, in the New Testament. The Mercy Seat was a really um, powerful symbol of God's reconciliation. Every year at the, um, the Day of Atonement, blood would be sprinkled on it and um, the people would be reconciled with God. So this Ark of the Covenant was a very powerful thing. It was a really a foreshadowing of Jesus in many ways, and we could probably spend an hour or so looking at that today. But David doesn't know about Jesus. He just knows this is about God's presence, and he wants it at the heart of his nation, something that hasn't happened since, since um, before Saul was king. He says this in 1 Chronicles 13, which is another telling of this story. It is time to bring the ark of our God back into Jerusalem, for we have neglected it during the reign of Saul. That word neglected, we have not looked after it. How's your relationship with God? Have you neglected it, maybe? I don't know. For me, I find that, that kind of, that word neglected kind of cuts to the heart sometimes. It's so easy to neglect our relationship with God. In the busyness, the craziness of life, the other things that grab our attention every day, how easy is it to neglect that relationship? Is it time to bring God back to the heart of things? Let's read this chapter. I've kind of spent most of my time giving you the context of the chapter. I'm going to pick up the story halfway through um, the, the sixth chapter. It is worth saying that the first part of chapter six is the first attempt to bring in the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. It doesn't go so well. David goes about it the wrong way. Someone dies. You can go and read that one uh, uh, when you get home. But let's pick up this story. 
When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, which is like an undergarment, the priests would have been wearing it, certainly not royal robes. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul and David's wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned to his home to bless his household, Michael, son of, a daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, dripping with sarcasm, I think it should say, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. And David says to Michael, He was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by those slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. What can we pull out of this passage for us today? For me, as I've been praying about it and thinking about this passage, it's the two reactions of the two people that really stand out to me. We've got the two main characters, David and Michael, and they react to God's presence coming into Jerusalem in this way in polar opposite ways. We have David, who, for me, the theme of this chapter and the whole of the two books of Samuel, really, it's his humility that speaks to me the most. This is the moment that he really should be carried into Jerusalem on the shoulders of his people, that songs should be sung about him. And yet he turns it completely on its head and he carries a symbol of God's presence into Jerusalem. His humility is quite staggering, really. He's also very active. You would expect a king to sit up in a window and watch a procession. You would expect a king to kind of, you know, take the salutes of the people as they come in and, and to be quite passive. But he is in the heart of it. It says he danced before the Ark of the Covenant with all his might. David's a musician. David's a, a, a song... What are a song composer, he, he's right in the heart of this and singing and dancing with all his might. He's in the middle of it. He is interested in one thing only, and that is praising God. And he also strips himself. The, the fact that he's wearing a linen ephod, he's taken off his kingly robes. You've got to remember that he's only just got them. He's got them for the first time, and those robes to him mean he has a position, he has power, 
He has security. He's never had that, those things before. And yet he takes them off. He says, when I'm in the presence of God, there's no room for these things. There's no room for my honor, my position, my power, my security. It's all about God. And so he takes those things off. He's only interested in honoring God. His heart is full of joy and it overflows into generosity in the gifts that he gives his people. This is who David is in this moment. His reaction to God's presence is these things. Michael, on the other hand, quite different. Where David is proud, is humble, she is proud. Where David is active, she remains passive and distant, watching from afar. Where David is interested in praise, she is interested in protocol. The thing that she seems to be most upset about is not that David's dancing, but that he's taken off his robes. He's stripped himself of power and, and his position. These are the things she's interested in holding on to. And we can understand why. She's the daughter of one of the most proud kings of Israel, Saul. She's been brought up with protocol and position and power, and so it would have been hard for her. I can kind of understand where she's coming from. David's not interested in these things. She's interested in being honoured. She's interested in herself. She's selfish. Her heart is full of contempt, despising, selfishness. Now, it's really easy to critique Michael. Very easy. But what is she actually doing here? She's looking at someone who's worshipping God and critiquing them. If there's a sin that the church has been most guilty of over the years, I actually think it's this. We spend a lot of time over the last few centuries critiquing one another on the way we worship. Wouldn't you agree? It's so easy to slip into the behaviours that Michael's actually um, doing here. It's so easy to slip into pride, into what we've achieved, into who we are. It's so easy to slip into caring about our position, our reputation, how we look. It's so easy to slip into Michael's behaviour. And so as we look at David and his reaction, I think we also need to look at Michael and hers. Where do we find ourselves in this story? Have we slipped into passivity? Have we slipped into being distant from God and removing ourselves from him? Have we slipped into putting on our own robes of position and reputation? Quite honestly, this morning as I sat there, I realised I have been. Should have, should have seen me this morning trying to work out what to wear. <laughs> Ironic, I know. It's so easy to slip into the behaviours of Michael. David is a man after God's own heart. I love the New Living Translation of verse 22, where David says this, I am willing to act like a fool in order to show my joy in the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. He says to Michael, who's worried about how he looks, hold my beer, because you're about to see foolishness on a whole other level. I love um, when Tim talked to us last week about the, the words for worship in the Hebrew. 
And that word halal um, kind of made us feel uncomfortable there as we thought about, um, thought about dancing. Um, <laughs> I love that word halal. It can be translated to celebrate with exuberance or to dance. But it also has these connotations of craziness in there as well. It can be translated clamorously foolish or crazy exuberant praise or to make a fool of or to act like a mad person. That day when I saw that group of people dancing and I didn't hear the tune, they looked crazy. Are we willing to dance with all our might before the Lord, even if we look a little crazy? Not just in our worship, but in the way we live our lives. It's so easy to hold back, isn't it? This whole passage, we could talk a lot about it. We could talk about Jesus in his own entry into Jerusalem. He did it very humbly as well. You know, I see Jesus a lot in this passage, not just in the way he entered into Jerusalem, but Jesus kind of had this same sort of attitude. Jesus wasn't interested in protocol. In fact, the only people in the story of Jesus that were interested in protocol were the Pharisees. They were interested in how they looked and the ways they presented themselves a lot, and he lambasted them for it. You know who he honoured? He honoured a prostitute who gate-crashed a party and poured perfume all over his feet. He said, that's the way you worship. He honoured people who pushed through crowds, climbed sycamore trees, broke holes in houses' roofs, and jumped out of boats to get to him. Crazy behaviour. That's who he honoured. Are we willing to look like fools? He gave us a really beautiful picture of how to enter the kingdom of God. He said, you need to do it like a child. Have you ever seen a child go after something that they wanted? I was in a cafe about 20 years ago. And I was waiting in line to order myself a coffee. Walked up to the counter. I'd, I had these intentions in this cafe of sitting in the corner with my journal and looking pretty cool. Cafe culture. And I was waiting to order myself a coffee, and out of the corner of my eye, something caught my attention. At the end of the counter was this glass cabinet. As you find in most cafes, that glass cabinets have good things in them. In this case, there was only one thing in the cabinet. It was a cake. And it was a cake like no other cake I'd ever seen. Kind of looked a bit like this. It was a mud cake. And it wasn't just one layer of mud cake. It was three different types of chocolate mud cake. Chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate, dark chocolate. Outside, it also had all these dark, beautiful-looking icing. On top of the thing was all these different types of chocolates. You're getting the theme of chocolate here. I like chocolate. I was excited to see the mud cake, but I was in a cafe, so I decided I'm just going to play it cool here. Got to order my coffee. I said, I'll have a latte, which was my coffee of choice at the time. And maybe I'll just have a piece of that mud cake. Ordered my cake, paid for my cake, went, found a seat in the cafe. I was excited about the cake. Internally, I was going berserk. But I decided to keep things cool. Got the journal out, just sort of journaled away about the cake. 
the waiter eventually came and he put the latte down in front of me and then he paused for effect. And he put down the biggest piece of mud cake I've ever seen in my life. Had a little splayed next to it. Looked pretty cool. He waited for a reaction. I gave him nothing at all. Walked away, obviously upset with me. I took my splayed and I put it on top of the cake. And without me even having to put pressure on it, it just glided through it, through the different layers. I could smell it. My mouth is watering by this point. I take the cake and I put a small piece onto my tongue. And I go to mud cake heaven. I, I left the cafe for a moment or two. After a few minutes of being in mud cake heaven, I realised I wasn't the only person in this cafe. And the mud cake wasn't the only thing in the, mud, in the cafe. In front of me was this two people. There was a woman and her child. This little girl, blonde, blue eyes, probably two and a half years of age. She looked like she was on a special day. She was all dressed up in a ballet, sort of pink tutu type thing. And she was doing something you don't normally see in a cafe. She was bouncing like excitedly bouncing to the point where mum was actually saying, you need to sit down. She was trying to get up on her feet to look around the cafe. Something exciting was about to happen to this little girl. And it soon became evident what it was. The waiter came over, placed before mum a latte and a piece of carrot cake or something ridiculous. <laughs> and then in front of this little girl, he placed a huge milkshake and the same sized piece of mud cake that she'd, he'd put in front of me. Now, in front of this little girl, it just looked ridiculous. It was bigger than her head. <laughs> Mum's physically restraining the girl from the mud cake. The, the waiter looks over at me and says, this is how you react. <laughs> and he walks away, and Mum removes her arm. And she lets this little girl eat the mud cake in a way I've never seen anyone eat anything before. She picks up all the bits of chocolate that are on the side and puts it on top of the cake, picks it up in two hands, and tries to shove it all in her mouth at once. It was not pretty, but it was beautiful. She had chocolate icing in her hair. She had goop coming out of her mouth down her pink dress. There was chocolate all over the table in front of her. And as I sat there watching her, literally with my splayed halfway to my mouth, it was almost like God said something to me. I felt like God was saying to me that day, you see that way that little girl is going after that cake? You see how she's got eyes only for the cake? How she doesn't care what anyone around her is thinking? That's the way I want you to go after me. That's what it means to go after something with all your heart. I want you to go after me like that. And I felt convicted in that moment that I'd been going after God with a splayed. I'd been nibbling on God. I'd been caring too much about what other people thought about me in worship with my friends who weren't part of the church. I'd been worried about looking like a fool in front of them. And God, his heart, was for me to go after him with two hands. 
That's what I feel like God's saying to us today. He wants us to be a people after his own heart, as individuals, but as a community too. Are we willing as a church to look foolish? Are we willing to go after him, not caring how we look, with two hands? This is what God wants of us. He wants us to go after him. And the great thing is that it's not just a one-way thing. This is how God goes after us too. God goes after us like a shepherd who's lost his sheep, a woman who's lost a coin, a father who's lost their son. Sometimes we don't feel like we're worthy to really be gone after like that. But as we've heard today, this is God's heart for us and he's provided a way too. Let's just take a moment and the band might come up. I just want to encourage us just to, just to sit with this imagery of David dancing with all his might and allow that just to sit with you I don't want you to feel guilty about not going after him, Mike. I just want you to sit with that picture and ask yourself, am I willing to, to pursue God in that way? Are we willing to pursue God in that way as a church? Well, God, I thank you for this beautiful picture of David dancing in your presence. I thank you that you are a God who pursues us in that same way, with that same passion. Your love for us, your pursuit for us is relentless, even when we may not feel we deserve it. Help us to return that pursuit to to go after you in that way also. Help those of us who feel like we've slipped into passivity, into being distant from you. Help us to draw near to you. Help those of us who feel like we've been slipping on robes of position or power or influence or reputation. Help us to remove those robes and lay ourselves bare before you. Lord, as we enter into this week, I pray that you would help us to know your pursuit, but also to return that and to be a people that go after your heart.